So there is, on both sides, you see this vitriol of political discourse right now. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, joined by FP columnist Rosa Brooks, Senior Future of War Fellow at New America, professor at Georgetown University, and author of How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. And Ben Parker, FP's executive editor for The Web, is also with us. Calling in from Palo Alto is Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. I hope you... ER nerds are all enjoying the the first week of getting a double dose of the ER. We really appreciate your support and all the kind words we got. For those of you who are slacking and missed last week's announcement, the ER is now moving to two episodes a week, although if the Trump administration keeps up the way they're going, we may go to two episodes a day for our own therapeutic purposes. If you have ideas or comments or have a witty mug slogan, or just some pathetic plea for a mug. I really love getting these pleas. I'm your only listener in the Solomon Islands. There's nothing to drink out of here except rotten coconuts. Please send me a mug. You know, send those in. Maybe we'll send you a mug. Likely it'll break en route, but we'll keep them coming. We're at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, High above Washington's DuPont Circle, we have the following conversation. So this is therapy here, folks. There's a lot going on. I just want you to relax, lie back on your couches in the capacious studio here, and 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 vent. And I want to start with you, Rosa, because you've gone through an experience uh, that I've actually gone through in the in the in the, in the Trump era. And I thought you you've written about it. Uh, beautifully. You know, you wrote a book called How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. You could now write a book on, you know, how journalism became war um, and everything uh, became warlike. Talk a little bit about your experience. Gosh. Uh, well, as as many ER listeners probably already know, because I've gotten a lot of nice notes from our 11 or 12 listeners, um, Ben, sitting right next to me here, made me write an article, which was a mean thing to do. And he told me <laughs> he told me I had to say inflammatory things in it. And so, of course, I... <laughs> Puppet master Ben Parker. <laughs> was, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I have a little bit of a cold, so I'm a little hoarse here. Uh, so I wrote an article in which I... It's really actually directed towards a non-U.S. audience talking about what could happen. Trump is crazy. And I talked about impeachment. I talked about the 25th Amendment. And at the very end of the piece, I said, you know, for the first time in my life, I can, I can imagine something that's previously seemed just completely unthinkable, which is a situation in which the military – you could have a military coup or, or – just the military refusing to obey selected orders. And I, I said, you know, that's a pretty frightening possibility. Uh, on the other hand, a truly insane order, you know, nuke China, for instance, something like that, would also be pretty frightening. I didn't actually think this was going to be interpreted as a immediate call for the armed overthrow of the U.S. government. But Breitbart.com, the uh, website Steve Bannon used to run, Steve Bannon now Trump's political advisor, Bannon used to refer to it as the platform of the alt-right. The Breitbart.com did think it was a call to armed insurrection. They published an article saying former Obama official calls for armed insurrection or something like that. I forget the precise wording of the headlines. And the hate mail started flowing in and this being 
this being uh, America, the land of the internet trolls, it took only a few hours for the death threats, the obscenity-laced death threats to also be flowing in. Wait a second. I don't think you're telling this fully. I think they were obscenity-laced anti-Semitic death threats. Some of them were obscenity-laced anti-Semitic death threats. That oh, was, but that was only one of the varieties. Anti-Hispanic, too. Also they said, Rosa, no. you know, we need to send her back across well, the border. As you all know, I am a uh, black Hispanic Jew. Um, and, and there part are, of our diversity program. There here. are those who don't like black Hispanic Jews, and I say, fuck them. Yeah. Because well, I'm proud I to say, be a black Hispanic. I, I say fuck him. And you want to know something? I am a black Hispanic Jew, too. Awesome. And I am a Muslim. I am also a Muslim. I forgot to mention that. I am and, just uh, a token I, white guy. <laughs> and, and a lesbian. I'm going to get the opportunity to register for all of these, all these. bands when they come about. <laughs> well, we will right. register for all of these bands. Corey, a moment of solidarity with Rosa. <laughs> Absolutely. What's happened to Rosa since she wrote that article is disgraceful and it's dangerous and that our political discourse has gotten to this level ought to cause all of us as Americans to worry that the norms of political discourse in American life are becoming increasingly violent and that will corrode our ability to to make democracy work in addition to being a danger to good patriotic Americans like Rosa. Yeah. And that is why we are all sitting here wearing We Are All Rosa Brooks t-shirts. <laughs> and <laughs> All Rosa Brooks's matter. Yeah. All Rosa Brooks's matter. And that will certainly be a mug going forward. But, you know, I've lived through this. Every time you write an article that runs afoul of these people, you get attacked. And I've had people send me tweets and pictures of ovens at Auschwitz and say the job wasn't done. I've had people go after my daughter who writes for was an editor at Jezebel and and you know attack her it, you know is oddly inconsistent with uh, the views on attacking daughters that are prevailing these days um in the White House. Ben, let me ask you a question. Rosa gets this kind of stuff and I get this kind of stuff and you're a big Jew yourself. Why do you get it? I mean, I think everyone sees it in the replies on their Twitter feed. I certainly have. I don't have as big a platform as audiences as you guys. But yeah, I mean, I think across the board, people see an unleashing of these demons of response from whether it's the alt-right or, to be fair, the extraordinarily angry liberals uh, at Trump. So there is, on both sides, you see this vitriol of political discourse right now. Well, let me ask you, Rosa, why don't more people hate Corey? Because Corey is always right. Corey is just absolutely right. And so who could hate her? She's she's actually the one right member of the right. She is the right. She's, yeah, she's the right yeah. of the right. You know. The, <laughs> wow, I feel like I'm wearing a miscongeniality banner across my pajamas right now. Yeah, well, first of all, we don't need to have that much detail, and secondly, Breitbart needs to focus on people like you who are a threat to the right. You never <laughs> Trumpers. You are the disloyal opposition. Yes, well, it is true that I am unrepentantly far out on the limb of opposing this president and the political forces he has unleashed. 
Well, let's talk about that a second. In fact, let's do something else here. Let's take the premise of Rose's article and let's explore it a little bit, because you know oh, that's some... a really good idea, David. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's but let's do it together. Let's do it, with, you know, to show some solidarity and also with an eye towards the news, because in the past week, some things have happened. So, for example. The national security advisor to the president of the United States was revealed to have lied when he said that he did not discuss substantive issues like sanctions with the Russians prior to taking office. Now, for those of you who are uh, new nerds or, or perhaps slacker nerds, you may not be aware of something called the Logan Act. And the Logan Act says that a private citizen or a citizen who is not in office of the United States cannot actually negotiate with another government when the U.S. is in a dispute with another government in a way that might actually undermine the United States. And the specific context of Flynn's conversation with the Russians were that sanctions were placed on the Russians by the Obama administration. And essentially, Flynn was saying to them, chill out, we'll be in office soon. You don't have to worry about this official action of the United States government, thus to the letter violating the Logan Act. And of course, Flynn, A, is part of a group of several people who are being tracked by the United States government for their too close and and dubious ties to Russia, including the former campaign manager of the Trump campaign, Manafort, Carter Page, a former member of that team, and so on. And so you have an administration that is too close to the Russians. There are direct violations. In my view, as a NSC watcher, Flynn's toast whether he's toast now or he's toast in a few months. The reason he's toast, however, and this gets to Rose's point, is that nine separate officials in the United States government decided really to, amazing. To, to throw Flynn under the bus. And they were fl- throwing Flynn under the bus because they know more than we do. And they are essentially sending a message to the Trump administration that we're listening, we know stuff just like the FSB knows stuff, pay attention, you can't mess around here, we are going to take care of the U.S. government. Now, this is not a distant cousin from what Rosa describes. This is people in the U.S. government protecting the United States from the current administration. Do I have that way wrong, Corey? No, you don't. I was shocked to see that They had nine separate sources uh, for the allegation against Flynn. And it really does speak to how much anxiety there is by people at high levels of government over the functioning of this administration. And in particular, over uh, some of the practices uh, that are patent. They're not only violations of norm, they're violations of law. Ben, you are a scholar of Washington and close tracker of all of these things. I'm, I'm going to go on record saying I'm a New Yorker. I don't want to okay. be tarred with that brush. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But you've lived here a long time and you have tracked this kind of stuff. Let's say you were the incoming national security advisor. 
Would you have been surprised to know that people in the United States government might have actually been tapping phone calls to the Russian ambassador? I mean, it is shocking that that Flynn would have gone out this far. It seems like he did not actually say or they have denied that he actually said the removal of sanctions. Certainly they were discussed. But, you know, I have to say what scares me more is not that this is going to bring down Flynn, but that this creates this bunker siege mentality within the White House and that any – you know, we see this extraordinary amount of leaks right now and, you know, these – White House insiders who are willing to reveal what happened in this Trump phone conversation with the Australian prime minister and all these crazy excesses. But what I actually worry about Cry is— Cry for help, Ben. Maybe so. Uh, no well, question. Someone saying, please help us. Contain <laughs> this guy. But what scares me is that the Trump administration will be able to expel these career officers, the people who they have, you know, who have carried on from previous administrations or career officials, and they will put into place loyalists who will not leak, uh, you know, who will keep run a tighter ship. And I, I, I think they're reeling from it now, but that's the concern. First of all, as for the issue of the White House denied, you know who else denied it? The Kremlin denied it. And then it must be – they must – can't have happened. Then. Can't have happened, yeah. right. But I mean the, the White House and the Kremlin are roughly on par at this point as completely without credibility. But obviously Flynn was not bringing this up to talk about the weather. He was sending a message about the Absolutely. sanctions. And as the former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, he should have known – that all of this was being taped and transcribed, and he shouldn't have lied about it because he could have known that people were going to bring this out. But that gets me, Rosa, back to your point, which is the United States government is full of career servants, and Ben says they can be fired, but there's millions of people in the United States, or you know, 1.3 million, I don't know what the number is, but there's literally too many people in the U.S. government to fire. And you know, you posited that the U.S. military might not follow an order. I think it's far more likely and in fact is happening that the U.S. intelligence community is not going to be played by somebody who is being played by another intelligence community. I mean, look, obviously none of us knows. I, I, I think that the likelihood of a sort of mass outright refusal to follow orders remains very, very unlikely uh, not impossible, but but very, very unlikely. I think that, however, a even larger scale of what we're already seeing, which is which is sort of passive aggressive refusal to follow orders by, you know, looking like you're following orders while leaking like crazy, slow rolling things and generally trying to quietly and invisibly sabotage things and slow them down. I think that's already happening. We're, we're seeing it. I think we'll see it even more. I think that the big question in my mind is does the craziness of the first few weeks of the Trump administration, does it get ex more extreme on Trump's part or does he learn from this? Um, you know, so I could see two different scenarios playing out. You know, one version, he or at least his closest advisors do learn from this. They learn things like do not pick fights with the federal judiciary. It is not a good idea. It will not help your case and so forth. And they manage to mute him a bit. They manage to stop him from crazy tweets all the time. And they continue to pursue the same agenda, but they pursue it more skillfully and therefore, in fact, end up having greater chance of success. The other scenario, though, is that Trump 
can't be contained by his own people, that he gets crazier, he keeps doing what he's doing, he gets more overt in threats to the judicial branch and so forth. He does purge his, at least his inner staff repeatedly. And then, you know, you potentially go down the road towards a real, a real constitutional crisis where people are resigning all over the place and where people are saying, I'm not doing that. And, and that's the scary one because that has other branches off of it, uh, some of which are very, very bad indeed. I worry about the Turkey scenario even more, which is, you know, this notion that the deep state, you know, you have a, a leader that is given to autocratic tendencies that fears this deep state that is working to undermine him, that then moves against the press, uh, that says that, you know, officials in the government are working on alternate means. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have a coup, you have 150,000 people purged. Uh, I, you know, I don't... You, you worry about that? Every night, David. I, wow. Yeah. What is it you drink at night before you go to sleep? Mm, it's, a, it's a cocktail. It's a cocktail. Yeah. yeah it's like antifreeze. Um, but... <laughs> um, but I, I, don't, I don't worry about this stuff, Corey. And I know that you are sound and sane. What what worries me is it's it doesn't worry me. It actually encourages me. And you know, I'm little Mary Sunshine You're here. Checks and balances kind I'm of I'm the probably I am checks and balances. And Corey, I would like to talk to you about the kind of checks and balances that exist that are consistent with the spirit of the Constitution, but are extra constitutional. And those would be people in the intel community leaking on the president until the president gets the message and throwing people in the administration under the bus one by one until it is absolutely clear to the president that whatever the Russians have on him, these guys also have things on him or people in the Justice Department or people in the Congress or people in the White House leaking and thus trying to influence behavior by the president. That's the way Washington really works. It's not prosecutions. It's leaks. And I think the leak is the biggest check that exists in our government. What's your theory on that? Well, I think there are a lot of checks that exist in our government. And I think that's one of the reasons that the Trump loyalists went so hard and so early against the intel community. Because... Trump and the people closest to him are lying about quite a large number of things that they're looking to discredit any information because they know that that they can't withstand the scrutiny of sunshine on their activities. Uh, to quote the great Justice Brandeis, sunshine is the best disinfectant. And that's the role that leaks play. Just to take the example of uh, the Mike Flynn phone calls to the Russians. It's out in newspapers now that people are surprised the administration lied about the content of the calls because the transcripts of the calls have been circulated. That will be a powerful way to hold the administration accountable, which is actual information about their activities, because so many of their activities are, are certainly beyond the norm and in many cases beyond the law. But... But what happens when we're in this era in which 
a very large segment of the American population is convinced that whatever the New York Times says is fake news. When we have a president who who has said openly things like any negative polls, any negative polls are fake news, uh, and a, and lots of people who seem to believe that, I worry that the the power of the leak of conscience, if you will, the sort of conscientious leak is diminished because, you know, at this point, let, let's say the New York Times dug up incontrovertible evidence that of all kinds of terrible things happening, ran it on the front page, the Post would do it too, every, every reputable news outlet would say it. Does it make any difference anymore? Well, I think the question is, at what point does it make a difference? Yeah. And I think, you know, th- that we're entering a period of what might be called the truth wars. Mm-hmm. Because what you're going to have is both sides trying to use the tools at their disposal to essentially advocate their view of the truth. In one case, by the way, the true you know, truth. There is the true truth. <laughs> and then, and then in the other the... <laughs> case, there is the fake truth, which is the Trump truth. But but I, I think that, you know, people are going to say, no, you you can't you can't do what you're doing, Mr. President. You can't deceive you're the an optimist. people. Well, I just think it's going to go on. And, you know, I want to turn to you, Corey, because I know the example that you have in your mind, right? And that is that after an extremely scandalous a relation, a tense relationship with John Quincy Adams, um, John C. Calhoun. You're going to bring up Chester A. Arthur. No, we no, haven't yet I, no, I, I know the should. way Corey's mind works, and I know that John C. Calhoun then became the vice president of Andrew Jackson, and Jackson was uh, brought into, uh, you know, pissed a lot of people off, including ultimately John C. Calhoun, and actually, the affairs, for example, of Peggy Eaton which were outed by Calhoun's wife because she resented Peggy Eaton, are a sign that this kind of war by leak and rumor has been around for a long time. Now, you probably were thinking also of the Alexander (laughs) Hamilton affair and and some of the others. But David, I cannot tell you how happy it makes me that you have been studying up on obscure 19th century examples. I take this as an enormous victory. So so I'm just going to pause here for a moment and savor that you've studied up on that. And and then I want to say two things. The about, first... Calhoun's, about Calhoun's wife, Floride. <laughs> That's the sound of two hands clapping in Palo Alto, David. Okay, go on. (laughs) So, you know, at the end of his presidency, Andrew Jackson was asked if he had any regrets, and he said he had two, that he had neither shot Daniel Clay nor hanged John Calhoun. (laughs) That proves that not only did leaks work in the 19th century, but checks and balances also worked in the 19th century. But, and here's the reason I brought this up, not entirely accidentally. And I wanted to turn to you for just this reason. Andrew Jackson is sometimes held up as a model for Trump and his you know, rough approach to politics in the United States. And I believe Andrew Jackson was the last president of the United States to attempt to ignore a decision of the Supreme Court. In other words, the last president of the United States to sort of say, well, some of these checks and balances I'm not so cool with. And here we have a president of the United States who's three weeks into office dismissing 
judges as being so-called judges and decisions as being political. And while this happens to some extent, it doesn't happen this early. It doesn't happen this persistently. And the Republican Party immediately hopped on the bandwagon of starting to attack this judicial process. And so it seems to me that Certain circumstances call for the informal system of checks and balances to be brought into play when the formal one is going to be ignored. Yes, but you are exactly right that Andrew Jackson successfully refused to enforce a Supreme Court decision, uh, the one on Indian removal policies, as I recall. But I yes, it's the, the famous, although probably apocryphal line from Andrew Jackson was, uh, Mr. Justice Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. Yes. Followed thanks. by saying, how many divisions does the Pope Followed have? Followed by saying, it, how yep. many divisions does the Pope have? Precisely. That was an all caps line, <laughs> yeah. I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Then with a bunch of exclamation yep. marks at the end. That was a, pre, <laughs> right. that was a pre-tweet tweet. <laughs> To David's point about the informal checks and balances, though, I quote from the Wall Street Journal's um, editorial about the Ninth Court's decision on the immigration ban. Quote, presidents who tee themselves up as the mad Twitter king are rarely saved by judicial modesty. Nice. Yes. Yes. It's not. But but you guys are being too optimistic. You guys are being way too optimistic. The checks and balances worked great in the 19th century until they didn't. And we had a bloody war, the most bloody war in American history in terms of per capita deaths. Uh, I I think it's. Now you're predicting a civil war. No, but I could. It was actually the most (laughs) bloody war in the history of the world up until that moment. I I think that I think that. While I continue to think that actual insurrection, war, etc. are extremely unlikely, I think it's a big mistake to decide that they're impossible. Uh, You know, these are to quote Monty Python. No one no one is ever expecting the Spanish Inquisition. Um, You know, that that's nobody expected World War Two either. Uh, Lots of horrific things have happened that that were improbable, extremely implausible. And then they happened. And, And I actually do think it is it is important for people to think through what really apocalyptic things could happen uh, precisely so we can think through how do we minimize the likelihood that they happen. Ben, you know, I was trying to walk Rosa back, trying to explain (laughs) that her theories of a coup were actually not so far-fetched because there is this kind of massaging of the the system by leak, uh, which is very similar to what she said, and she refuses to walk it back. She's now gone... (laughs) To even more apocalyptic. <laughs> Why do you turn to people like Rosa to inflame America? Precisely for that reason. Because yeah, she's really good at it. But, you know, I think Rosa's right. Leaks well, fomenting de- insurrection is not Leaks easy depend work. on a certain notion yeah, but- of propriety or shame. And this administration doesn't seem to care. They spin uh, the facts to whatever serves their benefit. And if Trump doesn't feel or his administration doesn't feel like they have erred in some fashion when information comes out and they just double down on it or deny that it ever happened, I don't see how – I mean I think leaks serve the purpose of history. They're great for – for foreign policy and they're great for journalism right now. And it, and it's important in educating the public. I have to say I'm not uh, particularly sanguine on whether it's going to impact or, or potentially you know, shift the direction of this administration. Well, let me tell you why you're wrong, OK? <laughs> um, oh, this is every day. <laughs> no, no, because I think— Ben, the, I think you're right. Uh, uh, that Well, OK. Corey, Corey, chime in. But she thinks— 
She th- I'm with David on this one. She, 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 <laughs> she thinks that, you know, Civil War is the next cha- chapter in American history. Uh, here's why. Because I think that as we get closer to the midterms, elect- leaks and things actually affect public opinion. And to the extent to which Trump is deemed to be unpopular, it will lead to disaffection among the Republican ranks. And I think that when there's disaffection under the Republican ranks, you actually get the prospect of checks starting to work again. And, you know, I mean, we have a... I agree. We had an example last week of Jason Chaffetz, this idiot who runs the Government Oversight Committee, who has, you know, like Paul Ryan, had his spine surgically removed, going home for a town meeting, and and people start shouting at him, "Do your job, do the government oversight." And the next morning, he starts saying, "Well, you know, maybe Kelly and Conway shouldn't be hawking Ivanka Trump's products and so forth." And so, public opinion actually does matter, and leaks actually drive public opinion. I, I hope you are right, but so let me lay out though two couple of different scenarios that I think could lead to a, a huge crisis, uh, I, which, again, I don't think these are the most likely, but I also don't think they're at all impossible. One scenario is that faced with a series of judicial setbacks, either to the executive order on immigration and refugees or to some future action, that President Trump does does an Andrew Jackson and says, no, I order Customs and Border Patrol and ICE to ignore this. Uh, and that could something like that could really precipitate a crisis. Ditto if we began to see attacks on judges, stuff that's drummed up by his rhetoric. Uh, we begin to see people doing the comet ping pong against federal judges. Uh, I think something like that could precipitate a real constitutional crisis, a refusal to abide by a judicial decree combined with threats that actually lead to action. Uh, Another possibility would be that part of what you predict, David, does come to pass, that there are enough moderates and independents and and moderate Republicans who are appalled and dismayed by the Trump presidency's first two years that in the next midterm election, uh, he's soundly repudiated, uh, and that even in the next presidential election, he loses. And he says, electoral fraud, I'm not stepping down. It was faked. It was fraud. You know, it was it was all manipulated. And I do I think these are likely again? Likely, no. Uh, you know, where would I rate them on the probability scale? You know, maybe... 2% likelihood. But that's actually a pretty big likelihood for a large uh, country with a lot of nuclear weapons. These are the Corey, low probability, high consequence outcome. Corey, have you had enough coffee this morning to consume that scenario? And do you have a view on it? My view on it is that I have been remarkably uh, happy in the last two and a half weeks to see the vibrancy with which Americans are now engaging in reining their government in. It's the kind of thing that warms the cockles of this conservative's heart. (laughs) Americans do not equate our government with our country, but instead understand that our government is responsive to the insistence of its public. And in fact, that's virtually the only thing our government is ever responsive to. It has been such a wonderful thing to see the number of Americans showing up at airports, not just protesting the executive order and offering pro bono legal services to people affected by it, 
But, you know, Sergey Brin reminding Americans that he's what refugees look like and and people refusing to leave airports until everyone who's been detained has been accounted for. That's a really beautiful thing. And that is the most important check and balance. And I think we're getting we're all getting an overdue civics education in this country. And people are responding in really beautiful ways that are binding the government, as David said, because our government is always in terror of public opinion. And and the loudest, ugliest voices have been the voices concentrated on Rosa since her article. But the broadest voices have been the voices of people like Phil Clay, whose piece in the New York Times about acts of individual heroism and how important they are in shaping the world's attitudes. I will close this sermon by saying <laughs> one of the most interesting things to bridge to our coming conversation about Iran, one of the most interesting things at the recent Iranian protest, anti-American protests organized by their government have been Iranians holding up signs thanking Americans for our opposition to the executive order. Mm, that's not what I'm seeing out of Tehran these days. Well, you're seeing a lot of stuff. And the thing is, there's no unitary Iran. We'll we'll get to that in a second. We've only got a couple of, of moments here. And I, before we leave this issue, I do want to check on a couple of things with Rosa. Um, in the article on 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 you and on, on Breitbart, were there any facts? Was anything uh, actually accurate? I don't remember, David. Because your husband working for the Defense Department. Uh, was Thus that in you that have article? Inside knowledge. Well, I was going to get to that. Okay, I was going to get. I was going to get to that. I tried I'm, pretty hard not to read it very carefully, oh, uh, and yeah, it was uh, a week ago. Okay, well, I read and it. And there were so many great articles, like the one in the Daily Stormer, Those denouncing nice Jewish insurrection. So there were there were just so many great articles about me. It, it, I'm, they're blurring together. Those guys a at the Daily mind. Stormer are fantastic. They're, they're yes, they're, gems. They're no, and they're and you you gotta. You got to imagine they have fantastic social lives, um, <laughs> sitting there in their basement with their knife collections. Um, but in any event, Rosa, one of the things in the article was it, it said your mother was the Jewish communist author Barbara Ehrenreich. Uh, no, no, it said my father was the Jew and my mother was the infamous communist. I see, I see, I see. And I just, I just want to confirm: is she still a member of the communist party? Uh, <laughs> Uh, my mother, my mother will be uh, manning the barricades uh, when the apocalypse comes. But no, she is not now, nor has she ever been, to my knowledge, a member of the Communist Party. Thank you. Those are words that I always wanted to have spoken. On this I, show. Well, you know, I, I was recently uh, got a call. I get these, you know, every six months or so to ask me to do an interview for the security clearance process for one of my former students or, or colleagues or employees. And a very nice agent uh, came to interview me in, and he said, with regard to the, the former colleague of mine who was having a security clearance renewed, he said, he said, to your knowledge, has this, has this gentleman uh, ever, ever been uh, an advocate for the armed overthrow of the United States government? And I was very tempted to say, well, no, but uh, actually I am. <laughs> Haven't you been reading the news? Those yeah. interviews but, are ridiculous. But I decided that was probably not the right thing to say, so I kept my mouth shut. Okay, well, this gets me to the next question, which uh, Ben uh, sort of tipped the hand toward. The, the article seemed to indicate that your husband, because of his time in the Defense Department, 
had the wherewithal and the understanding and actually to engineer a coup of the United States government. And well, I was wondering, d- is that true? Do you believe your husband, my husband is, is a very is a good devious guy? He what? is a very <laughs> devious guy. Uh, uh, he is, however, a, a he is now retired from the army. Um, but but he was very adept at taking security measures to protect us in the wake of all these death threats. He installed cameras at our front and back doors, and we we were immediately able to catch one uh, intruder attempting to get into the back door. But it it was an intruder with fur and a tail. It was a fox. So that we have great video of it now, which I would be happy to show you all and put on our our, our new ER YouTube channel well, of proves, cute animals. Proves all the connections that we've long <laughs> known about Corey between the Daily Stormer. Breitbart and Fox. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> we need to give Maria the rim shot button. No, I mean, I mean more seriously. You know, my husband. My husband spent 25 years serving his country in the U.S. Army as an Army Special Forces officer, and you know, it's really pisses him off uh, all of this stuff and the suggestion that somehow, you know, he or I are unpatriotic really makes him pretty mad. It's really outrageous for a family that has spent more time and devoted more of its energies to public service than the Trump family could do for the next 10 generations. (laughs) Um, Corey. Well, there's always hope. need to cite her admirable husband's commitment to the country. Her own serves to defend her against all of this craziness. Corey, actually, I agree. One of the things that's been really inspiring in the last few weeks is the the number of Americans who have come out just to speak up for core American values and, and, and protest of some of the more outrageous things that President Trump has done is is really inspiring. People have gone to airports, the people who've marched. I, I, I see it in in friends and neighbors who have never been politically active in their lives are are finding ways to get involved, are are joining <laughs> the local Democratic Party, God help them, uh, et cetera. But the other thing that's been really just personally very very touching and and I'm really appreciative of is the the number of people who have including including you guys who have really come to my defense. I've gotten a lot of really nice emails from people identifying themselves as ER listeners, uh, and and it means a lot to me. Well, I have to say, you know, normally I wrap these things up with a you know a sermon that goes on for too long, and then people write in about how smart Corey was, but. Um, <laughs> Incredibly <laughs> aggravating, but in any event, um, also better keep looking. Keep up, ER nerds. Keep it up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, you know, first of all, I want to say the sermons for today's episode were ably delivered by Corey and Rosa, and I heartily endorse both of them. And don't seek to gild those lilies any further. And and say in conclusion that I too have seen a lot of the support of ER listeners for Rosa. Keep it up, folks. It actually does make a difference when this kind of craziness happens, that people step up, speak out, and recognize that public discourse shapes outcomes here. Uh, And that's what Rosa was talking about. And there is something good in this moment in that people are being activated. And even though it's for really dark reasons, such as the circumstances surrounding uh, Rosa's article. We will be back in just a couple days because we're now on twice a week. And so you can get more of this real soon. And we hope you'll join us again uh, with 
Ben and Rosa and Corey. And thanks to all three of you and thanks to those of you who've been out there listening for listening. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.